Today we are in Luke chapter 9, verse 18 down to verse 22. Let me read this for us. This is what God's word says beginning in Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, help us by your Spirit to receive these words as truth. Open our eyes that we might behold the glory of Jesus Christ, who he is, and that our hearts might be wholeheartedly inclined to him by a true and living faith. We ask this in his name. Amen. The choice between life and death, heaven and hell, eternal joy and eternal misery really comes down to how one answers this question. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And it's remarkable that the entirety of our eternal destiny hangs on the single question of the identity of this first century Jewish man in the Palestinian region who was last seen at the Mount of Olives uh, around 30 years of age, give or take. Who is he? And what's the big deal about it? Now the question is not simply asking for his birth date, his driver's license, or even to describe certain characteristics about him such that you could pick him out from a long list of other people. But the question is, who is he to you? Who do you think he is? And by implication, it's really asking, how do you relate to him and regard him based on what you believe him to be? And this is the question that Jesus himself asked his disciples at this pivotal point in his ministry. It wasn't just something that he kind of tossed out there out of mere curiosity. But as you can see in verse 18, it was a question that he asked after laboring in prayer. Jesus bore their names before the presence of his father. And in the full weight of his care and concern for their souls, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And in so doing, Jesus was drawing out the confession of true saving faith, the verbal declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. As Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth and uh, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, why is that so important? Why is a a, uh, personal verbal confession so essential well it's because salvation is personal meaning every man every woman every child 
will answer to God for his or her own soul. And to confess the truth with your own lips represents your personal conviction expressed from within, that it is yours, that you own it, that no one is doing it for you, but it is your own faith. There's no solidarity in just being in the church or growing up in a Christian home or having Christian friends even. And those are all blessings to be sure, but they are not the substance of regenerate living faith because again, everybody answers to God individually. Every soul is individually in need of God's saving work in his or her own life. And so that same question that Jesus asks every single person in this room this morning is, who do you say that I am? What is your confession? Now it's interesting that Jesus asked this question to his disciples at this point in Luke's narrative. Now what I mean is that it had already been a couple years since the disciples first met Jesus and they've been following him in in his earthly ministry. In fact, Luke records Peter's confession here and even though it's Peter recorded as confessing it, it was really, he was a spokesperson for all the disciples so all the disciples were confessing the same thing. But Luke records Peter's confession here right after uh, the account of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in verses 10 through 17, which we saw last time when we were in the Gospel of Luke. But when we read Matthew and Mark's account, we find that actually a lot more happened in between uh, these two passages, which Luke intentionally skips over. For instance, it's in between the two where we have Jesus walking on water. Uh, We see Jesus uh, doing another miraculous feeding of the 4,000. He fed the 5,000 and he fed the 4,000 again. Uh, And we see Jesus traveling outside of the region of Galilee where he was ministering, which which is what we've seen thus far in the Gospel of Luke. But he would travel out even all the way out to Tyre and Sidon, which is the Gentile territories of that uh, region. So point being, a lot has happened already in Luke, and even more has happened beyond what Luke records for us. And so here in verse 18, by the time we get here, the disciples have known Jesus and been with him for I mean, kind of longer than I've known most of you. I've been here for two years. That's kind of a long time. Some of you, I feel like I've known you forever. But Jesus had been with his disciples for about two years, give or take. But despite all that time together, here Jesus asks this question, pointed sharp at their individual souls. Why? Because just hanging around Jesus is not enough, even if you do it for years. Being in the vicinity of other disciples of His has no bearing on your relationship to Him. You can even witness the the power and the majesty of His miracles and the manifestations of His glory as they did. Front row VIP seating over and over and over again. But even so, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have received the salvation that He brings and that you have been converted in your soul. Because you see, it's possible for someone to do all of those things and yet to do so all along simply as a spiritual spectator. You're just observing these things as a bystander. You're learning about Jesus. 
You're hearing a lot about what he has done Sunday after Sunday. But the question is, so then what? Having seen and heard all of this, who do you say that I am? You see, it's a common trait of many unconverted souls to be willing to acquaint themselves with Jesus from afar. Being hidden within the safety of the numbered congregation, but all the while, never be confronted with Jesus face to face. One on one. Mano a mano, as they say. Now notice how Jesus builds up to this question. He begins by first asking, who do the crowd say that I am? What, what does everybody else say about me? And well, there's all kinds of answers. Oh, some say you're John the Baptist. Uh, not, well, John the Baptist was beheaded, but I guess now he's reheaded. Others say, oh, you're, you're Elijah, reincarnate. Or, oh, no, you're just another one of those resurrected Old Testament prophets. Lots of curious answers. But Jesus says, okay, that's great. But I'm really interested in this. And it's actually written very emphatically in the original. But you, who do you say that I am? It really doesn't matter what others think and believe, even if they're right or wrong. Because I'm asking you directly and personally, who am I? And I wonder how many souls have entered into eternity unconverted and thus unprepared for it, Because even though they spend years and decades in the church being surrounded by biblical teaching and sound doctrine and faithfulness to the gospel as a church, they never face this personal question head on. You'd be surprised how often this happens. Because instead, subconsciously, the basis of their faith had always been assumed by virtue of the fact that they were rubbing shoulders with other Christian people, sitting side by side other converted souls in the church on Sundays. And so the secret thoughts are something like, as God knows, well, my church says that you're the Messiah. My study Bible says you're the Lord. My pastor says it every week. My spouse for sure is born again. I can tell. Okay, that's so wonderful, but what about you? Well, again, you'd be surprised at how many people are afraid to face that question personally and will actually do anything to avoid it. Why? Because, well, it's a life-changing question and answer. And that's a terrifying thought for sinners because as fallen sinners, we all love the sensation of being in control of our lives and having our lives be a certain way according to our will. You never really know what is hidden underneath the deepest and innermost thoughts of one's soul. I'll never know what's in your heart as a pastor. The problem is when pastors think that they do know. And then they get into all sorts of trouble. But I'll never know what's in your heart. I can hardly figure out what's in mine. I'm struggling to figure out myself. Let alone you. But the Lord knows. And only Him. And we answer to Him alone. Not just that He is the only one to whom we answer. But also that we answer to Him alone. By ourselves. One on one. With no one else to speak for us. Now imagine for a second. That everyone in this room suddenly vanished for a few minutes. Myself included. As I'm speaking, I can't even finish a sentence. We're all gone. And you're the only one left in this room. And you're looking around thinking, what in the world happened? I guess Pastor Sam was wrong about the rapture. (laughs) 
But as you look around and you're thinking, well, okay, that's weird, but I guess uh, I better pack up my bags and head home. And you're about to head home, and then Jesus shows up. And you're thinking, well, maybe if I'm still, he won't notice that I'm here. And then he makes eye contact with you. And there's no one else for him to make eye contact with because it's just you. And then he asks you, who am I to you? Who do you think I am? What is your response? Now, I know we have young ones here. We have students in elementary school, middle school, high school, some even in college. It doesn't matter your age, whether you're 8 years old, 13 years old, 18 years old. You are, regardless of your age, a unique, precious soul in the image of God, and you are a distinct individual, your own person. And you may have come with your mom or dad, who is a Christian, and you know they have put their faith in Jesus, and they follow him, and they tell you about him. Or maybe your parents aren't believers, but you come each Sunday as a, as a regular habit just because it's what you've done for years. I mean, I think I should just ask, have you ever answered that question for yourself that Jesus is asking here? And he's not asking you this as a matter of Bible trivia, but he's speaking to you personally. Hey, child, who am I to you? Who do you believe me to be? Am I just another religious figure like Muhammad? Buddha and your mom or dad just happened to land on the Christian version? Am I just a famous teacher who has some really great suggestions on how to live a good life and be a good person? Am I made up? Am I a fairy tale? Am I like Santa Claus? Sorry if you believe in Santa Claus, I ruined it. He's not real. Who do you say that I am? Young or old? Every person here. And the answer that we must all come to by faith and by personal confession is what Peter said in verse 20, that you are the Christ of God. Now, the language here sounds kind of funny. We're not maybe used to saying the Christ. So what was Peter saying by this? Well, the name Jesus Christ is, of course, a name that most of the world is probably familiar with, for better or for worse. But a common misconception amongst unbelievers, and even some believers, is that Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name, which is not true. If you thought that, that's not the case. But even if it's not that outlandish, okay, at the very least, many think that Christ is just kind of the second part of his name that's kind of coupled together as a duplet, uh, like Mary Jane, Billy Bob, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae. And then likewise, Jesus Christ. But we have to understand that Christ is not a name. But the word Christ is a title pertaining to his office. It's just like how the word president is not a name. But we link it together with the name of the man in the Oval Office to recognize his special function and role and office as leader of the nation. And so notice how Peter says, you are the Christ of God. It is a title. It's like saying you are the 
precedent. And so what is the meaning then of this title, Christ? Well, the word Christ is actually just a Greek word that we transliterated into English. And it corresponds to the Hebrew word, which you may have heard before, Messiah. Okay, so Christ is Greek. Messiah is Hebrew. So actually here, Peter was effectively saying, you are the Messiah of God. Well, if Christ is a Greek word and Messiah is a Hebrew word, then what is the English word for those two words? And the answer is the anointed one. That's what it means. Christ, Messiah, the anointed one. When we say Jesus Christ, we are saying Jesus, the anointed one. Now, why is this anointing and this title of anointing such a big deal? Well, if you look in the Old Testament, you find that a person that was designated for a particular task for God, for a certain mission, a certain purpose, would be anointed with oil to signify that this person was set apart for special service to God. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll find that throughout Israel's history, there were three kinds of special tasks that warranted being anointed with oil. And these are what you might call the three offices in the Old Testament, which correspond to three different roles in service to God and his people. And that is, first, prophets were anointed. Second, priests were anointed. And third, kings were anointed to the office. Prophet, priests, and kings. For example, with respect to the prophet, the prophetic office, we see that in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16, Elijah, the prophet Elijah, was commanded to anoint Elisha, who would succeed him as a true prophet of Israel. And so in this sense, Elisha was Messiah, right? anointed with oil, to signify that God had chosen him, Elisha, rather than his neighbor's, Jimmy or Johnny uh, for that special responsibility of being a prophet and speaking God's words to his people, setting him apart from everybody, every, every average Joe. And with, with respect to the priest, we see from Exodus that Aaron was anointed with oil as the high priest of Israel. And of course, this was a very special task to bear the responsibility of being the mediator between God and man, meaning that Aaron was a representative Why? Because man is sinful. And the holy God cannot interact with sinful man directly. And so there must be a mediator, someone in between, to act as an ambassador or representative, a liaison. And, of course, as part of that office, as high priest, Aaron, among other high priests, would offer sacrifices on behalf of the sinful people to appeal to God's mercy and justice. Because an innocent animal would be slaughtered instead of the sinners that the high priest represented who deserved to be killed. And of course, with respect to the office of king, we find that King David was anointed by Samuel as king of Israel in 1 Samuel 16. And David was called, of course, to lead the people of Israel according to the law of God, governing over them in obedience and devotion to God. And so these were the three anointed offices of God's people in the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king. But you see, all of these offices, all of these anointings, 
And what they did as part of that office were foreshadows pointing to the coming anointed one, the anointed one, who would be by himself, in himself, the fulfillment of all three offices. Because he would be the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king that we need. Because God announced in Deuteronomy chapter 18 that a prophet like Moses was coming in whom God would put his own words into his mouth and he would be the one to whom we must listen and obey. And God announced in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 110 that a priest was coming who would atone for the sins of his people by suffering for them, by by taking on the punishment they deserve, by sacrificing himself. And God announced in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that a king was coming through David's line who would not just be another human king whose reign would come to an end when he dies, but this king, one of David's offspring, one of David's seed, would sit on the throne forever and his kingdom would be everlasting. This is the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, Jesus of Nazareth, whom God had promised all throughout the Old Testament. This is what we mean when we say that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one the world has been waiting for, and He came 2,000 years ago. This is who Jesus of Nazareth is. You see, loaded in this word, Messiah, or Christ, in this one word, it's the story of the whole gospel, the entire Bible. Because these three offices are not just random technical details of the Bible, the Old Testament, but these three offices were instituted because they encapsulate all of our needs as fallen sinners. That's why God appointed these offices. Think about it. Why do we need prophets? Because we're ignorant of the truth. Blinded by sin. We don't know what is the truth. We've been deceived by the false promise of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, the lie that we would be like God, but it was anything but that. And man has walked away from the Garden of Eden, the, the paradise of his presence, and he doesn't know his left hand from his right hand anymore. And that's why ever since Genesis chapter 3... Human civilization cannot stop bowing down to idols and images, even today all throughout the world. Why? Because the law of God is seared into our conscience, and we all know, every human being knows deep inside that there is a creator to whom we are accountable, a God whom we must worship. But the problem is, we don't know who he is anymore. We've lost our way, and so we keep creating gods and idols to bow down to because we can't help worshiping something because we're created for worship. It's our DNA. We are worshipers by design. The problem is we're worshiping the wrong God because we've lost our way to Him. We don't know who He is. And before you think that modern American civilization is far beyond such primitive practices of bowing down to physical objects, If anything, we are worse. Because the physical idol that we effectively have created and bowed down to is a mirror. 
we bow down to and worship ourselves. We are possibly the most narcissistic, self-glorifying civilization in history. To the point that we are now trying to become our own creators by changing something so fundamental to human nature as gender. Trying to undo the, the creator's beautiful handwork. This is how lost we are. This is how blind we are. How ignorant of the truth we are. But out of pity for such a lost world, God sent His Son to tell us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come to me and I will take you to your Father, your Creator. All the other prophets of the Old Testament, they were saying, there is one coming, there is one coming. They talked about Him. But Jesus is the ultimate prophet because he is the living prophetic word come down to us in human flesh to reveal who God is is in the most perfect way because he says, I am the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of divine nature. I am God incarnate to show the truth. Why do we need priests? Because we're sinful in the eyes of the holy God whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil, Habakkuk 1.13 says. As soon as we can interact with God face to face, light cannot commingle with darkness. No matter how much we try to, to clean ourselves up, no matter how much we try to atone for our sins, the damage is done. Because the Bible tells us that, that sin has not made us just dirty on the surface and can be wiped off by scrubbing hard enough, but rather sin has corrupted our very nature. Ephesians 2 says that by nature we are children of wrath, dead in sins. And so because our innermost hearts are polluted, no matter what we do, we can't cleanse ourselves because the problem is not the environmental conditions that are dirty. It's not because we have bad influence around us, but the problem is within. It is toxic and polluted inside It's like trying to wash your dirty hands from a sink that only pours out sewage. You can't clean yourself up. No matter how many animals are sacrificed, nothing can cover our sins. But so Jesus has come as our great high priest to be that innocent animal to be killed as our substitute. This is what he came to do. Hence, verse 22 here, he says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Jesus is the suffering servant of of, of God, as we see in Isaiah 53, anointed by the Holy Spirit for that priestly task to be pierced for our transgressions and to be crushed for our iniquities. And his sacrificial death is all sufficient. Because he is not just another lamb. He's not just another animal. But he is the lamb of God. Who takes away the sin of the world. He is infinite God in human flesh. Hence Jesus says here. That the son of man must suffer. You know what the son of man is? That's the title you see in Daniel. The Son of Man, from the Ancient of Days, receiving dominion over all earth. An eternal figure. God. But come in human flesh. And because He is God incarnate, His sacrifice 
is of infinite value and effect and able to cover all of our sins completely based on his finished work on the cross. Why do we need a king? Because we're lost in our ways. We don't know what is the purpose of life, why we are here, where we are supposed to go, how we are to live, what brings us joy, fulfillment, and meaning. You know, isn't it so revealing that at the end of the day, this is basically what everyone is searching for. This is the quest common to all mankind. The meaning of life. Purpose. How many books are on the bookshelves at stores that, that, that are telling you, this is, this is what it is. This is how you should live. This is, this is how, how, how you should construct your life. Podcasts, they are the rage today. All these self-help programs trying to guide people. Why? Because people are desperately searching for it. The supply is there because the demand is high, you see. And, and this is the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes. That in this fallen world, being alienated from God, we have lost our ways. And because of that, everything is meaningless. And everyone is helplessly searching for some meaning in this meaningless world. We don't know where we're supposed to go. And we are depressed and empty inside because of it. As a civilization. But Jesus has come to announce the good news of his kingdom. Where he is king. He has come to rescue us from our lost estate and bring us back to fellowship with God, a loving relationship of obedience and submission to His authority because this is the purpose for which we were created. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, the very end of the book, says, here's the conclusion of all things, Solomon says. Here's the the big takeaway. Fear God. And obey his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Meaning this is our entire purpose. I have found out. Solomon says. That is to say we were never created to govern ourselves. We were made to be governed. By our father and creator. Listening to his words. That are meant for our good. Trusting in His perfect wisdom and guidance. Living to glorify Him and not ourselves. And only then do we find supreme satisfaction and joy when we stop living for ourselves. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. That we can return to this right relationship with God. To return to the garden, to what made the conditions of Eden so heavenly, because it was a life lived in the presence of God, in total dependence on His every word, and living out His will for us. You see, church, who Jesus is, and what He has come to do, it tells us a lot about who we are, What is our condition? And what is our need? In this one word, Christ, Messiah, Anointed One, in this one word is the summation of all of Scripture, all of history, the entirety of human existence. It's no wonder that Paul says in Ephesians 1.10 that Christ is, is the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things 
in Him, things in heaven and things on earth, all of heaven and earth converges in Christ. This 30-year-old Jewish man in Palestine 2,000 years ago is the focal point of this entire cosmos. What a glorious mystery revealed to us in the gospel. Do you believe this, beloved? Do you believe that Jesus, this man, is that anointed one? You don't have to know all of these terms about the three offices of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, but very simply, even for, for even the children here to understand. First of all, do you believe that Jesus is the truth and that you are lost without Him and that you need to trust His words? Secondly, do you believe that you're a sinner who deserves to be punished, but do you believe that Jesus suffered and died to take that punishment for you? Thirdly, do you believe that Jesus really is God who came down to us as man? And so do you believe that He is the King, the Master, your Master, who is worthy of your trust and worthy of you following Him every day for the rest of your life and forever? This is the confession of true saving faith. And this, beloved, must be your personal confession. And I pray that it is, because this is the true Jesus of the Bible. Now, you might be wondering, well, if this is the truth, why did Jesus tell Peter and the others to tell no one about it in verse 21? Well, the simplest answer is because the people of Jesus' day were very excited about the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. But they all had the wrong expectations of what he would be like. Because the Messiah they were looking for was a political leader, a military leader, someone to overthrow the Roman government that was occupying the Jewish territory, and someone who would bring back uh, the people of Israel to their own sovereign nation, to be their own people, have their own king, and back to the golden age as it was under David and part of Solomon's reign. And we know this because in John chapter 6, verse 15, it says that after doing this amazing miracle, Jesus had to withdraw to the mountain by himself because he sensed that the people were about to come and take him by force and make him king. Why? Because they thought, wow, this guy is really powerful. He can do all kinds of things. Let's have him be the king, and maybe he could bring lightning down and zap Caesar with a lightning bolt, and we could take over and win against the Roman army and go back to the heydays. That was their thought. That's why they were excited about him. It was a wrong excitement. That is obviously not what Jesus came to do, but again, as John 6 says, the excitement and the fervor was overwhelming, and they were about to force him to be that political Messiah, that military leader that they wanted. And if so, the cross would have never happened. And so Jesus kept it a secret with his disciples, told them to not spread the news. Because if they did, 
Well, what Jesus says must happen. The Son of Man must suffer many things that would not have happened. You see, the people had an expectation for the Messiah. This is what people wanted Jesus to be. Which is why they were so disappointed and rejected Him when He didn't do any of that. And instead went to be crucified. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 that for the Jews, the biggest stumbling block is a crucified Christ, a crucified Messiah. They go, huh? How in the world? That's embarrassing. That's pathetic. That makes no sense. No, we, we want a Messiah like Absalom, tall and handsome, and you know, has a sword, and he does that. But a guy who got pierced and hung, like an embarrassment? No, 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 no. That's not for us. It was a stumbling block. A, a, a mental hindrance. They couldn't believe that. They didn't, because they didn't want that. But they needed that. They needed the Christ who would suffer for them because their greatest need was not political deliverance. It was not economic relief, not military victory or national sovereignty. But it was the atonement for their sins which they could never atone for. And thank God, He is not only so wise, but so gracious to give us what we need and not what we want. Because if God gave us what we wanted and not what we needed, then He'd be giving us over to be lost in our ways forever. And this gives us such an important reminder for us, even as believers in in all of life, doesn't it? That even now, as we walk by faith, as we live our lives in Christ, as, as our Lord and King guides our days and leads us according to His will, He is always at work to give us exactly and perfectly what we need every single moment without any lack whatsoever, exactly what we need and not what we want all the time. Again, God never fails to meet all of our needs. And the problem is that we are fixated on what we want according to our limited wisdom and perspective and according to our often tainted desires And when we don't get what we want, we immediately assume that God doesn't love us. And that He's not with us. But far from it. He loves His children too much to give them over to what they want. You know, these days our baby boy wants to roll over and eat the carpet because the texture is interesting. But out of love... I stop him. I don't let him. And sometimes he gets upset that I interrupted his plans. But it's only because he hasn't matured yet enough to know what is this carpet whose texture is so interesting, how sanitary it actually is. But most importantly, he has yet to grow and develop to a maturity where he's able to exercise a more conscious trust in his father. He's only six months old, so give him a break, I guess. But this is what we're like as believers. We're all such spiritual children who still don't fully know what is best for ourselves. And in fact, we will never fully know what is best for ourselves because we were never meant to know because we were always meant to be dependent on God and to trust Him. 
And growing in Christ, spiritual maturation is to become more conscious in the trustworthiness of our Heavenly Father, whose will and ways in our lives are always perfect in love. Christian, whatever you are going through, whatever your situation, learn to trust the loving will of your Father in Heaven, who knows your needs even before you think to ask for them. And let this be your assurance that for your ultimate and greatest need, He sent the Christ, the one anointed by the Holy Spirit, to be our eternal Word and Prophet, our great High Priest, and our King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. Let's pray together. Gracious and almighty Father in heaven, we thank you that we might, through your word, properly understand the immensity of your love for sinners and your overflowing love and care for your children who have been adopted into your family in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the promise that you have fulfilled, that you have kept so perfectly, the promise that has been echoed in so many different angles, in various portions, in various modes, all throughout the Old Testament, but fully converged in the birth of that child in that manger in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, and culminated on that bloody cross on which he laid down his life and shed his blood for us. Lord, thank you for the richness of your promise and and how it is not on the basis of anything in us, but solely on the basis of your unconditional grace to us. And Lord, now as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would bless this bread and this cup, which is ordinary, but that you would set it apart by your Spirit for the special purpose and means of conveying your grace to us, of sealing this gospel promise and sealing our confession of Christ until he returns. We ask this in his name. Amen.